Our guest today is a fascinating individual. David Gooderham is a retired lawyer who was for a long time a partner at the firm of Alexander Holborn Bowden and Lang in Vancouver. David had a long and highly successful career as a civil litigator and he retired in 2012. Since his retirement, David has spent much of his time focusing on climate change. He takes a lawyer's eye, the skill of someone used to wading through mounds of expert evidence, and applies it to the science of climate. He then writes and presents concise summaries of his understanding of the science and its implications. He has written and submitted to regulators a number of works on climate change, and he's focused on the climate impacts of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. He has lobbied governments at a variety of levels, including making submissions to the Vancouver City Council, lobbying members of parliament, submitting documents to the National Energy Board, making submissions to Environment Canada, participating in the ministerial panel process in respect of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, and among other efforts. When Mr. Gooderham learned that despite these efforts, the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion was going forward without his fundamental concerns that it was irreconcilable with meeting Paris climate targets addressed, he made the decision to engage in civil protests, civil disobedience, and he was arrested for blocking the entrance to the Westridge Marine Terminal. So we'll talk more about the contempt process in an upcoming class, but you'll hear a bit about it today on the podcast. So what you'll hear in this podcast is first Mr. Gooderham addressing his thinking on climate change, Paris, and the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, as well as talking about the suitability of the regulatory framework as it exists to address climate matters. Then at the end, as I anticipated, he will discuss his arrest and the contempt process, as well as the argument of necessity that he advanced and was ultimately unsuccessful very recently at the British Columbia Court of Appeal in relation to and as we'll hear, he is considering uh, a further appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. So fascinating guest, uh, and I won't uh, waste any more time on the intro. Profound honor to be joined today by David Gooderham. So welcome to David Gooderham, for, uh, and thank you very much for joining us on this podcast where Mr. Gooderham will speak about his experiences, both advocating before the National Energy Board on questions of greenhouse gas emissions, as well as his experience with uh, civil disobedience and and the criminal contempt proceedings that have come out of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. So thank you very much, David, for joining us. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm delighted to, to join you, and it, it's, um, I'm very interested to talk to uh, all of you, uh, and uh, thank you for, for listening through what I'm going to say, um, I think um, I'm going to be- really touch on three things uh, because our time is limited. I'm, I'm going to um, be- begin with uh, the starting point question from my perspective of my experience, which is whether it is possible to reconcile the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, that is to say the ex- the expansion of oil sands production that that encompasses with the Paris targets. So in other words, is TMX uh, uh, consistent with the Paris targets to put it in a very, very simple form? And then then I will look, uh, if you will, at what, uh, not necessarily what would be the perfect review process to address these issues if we could do it all over again or if we have a chance to do it again, but what are some of the um, elements that I think are relevant in, to take into account in deciding on what a better review process would be, um, and, and then um, and then I will uh, conclude uh, uh, with um, um, with uh, 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 some final comments on civil disobedience, and which will really relate the experience I've had in this recent process over the past two years to what we're talking about. So I'll start then with this. Uh, uh, question is, we may put it as reconciling uh, TMX and the Paris targets. Um, now, I'm going to start, uh, and I'm going to give you just a few numbers in what I talk about, because this is one of the few topics where we, we have to have some sort of markers with what trend lines look like. So I'm going to start with Canada's um, um, energy uh, 
Canada's uh, oil oil sands production, uh, planned oil sands production, I'm just going to look to 2030, although you know that the Canada en Energy Regulator data now and it looks up to 2040, but I'm just going to take it to 2030. And um, Canada's planned expansion at the moment is to go from a little over 3 million barrels a day of oil sands production, 3.043, uh, up to 4.1 million by 2030. So that's a little over a 1 million barrel per day increase. And I'll, in a moment, give you the sort of global context for that, but that's the increase. Um, it's relevant to bear in mind that Canada provides about 5% of global production, so uh, Canada is a significant player in, in what is happening. Um, uh, therefore, we, we, we understand that on the present path we're on, uh, Canada's oil production will increase 1 million uh, barrels a day over the next 10 years. Um, I'm going to add a note there just to alert you to what I think is a very significant thing that has already happened that between the end of 2015 and the end of 2018, which is basically between the start of the trans, the final stage of the pipeline review process in 2016, in the last three years, Canada's oil sands production has increased a little over 500,000 barrels a day. So um, we've all, since if we go back to the eve of the pipeline decision, We've already done a 500,000 barrel a day increase, and we're on a path to add another million to that by 2030. Okay, so it's then relevant to mention pipeline capacity here because, and all of this comes really from uh, from the many, many documents of the past three years, but certainly the review of related greenhouse gas emissions estimates for TMX, which we call the upstream emission assessment in 2016, gives us all this stuff. Um, the, the new pipeline TMX gives 590,000 barrels of new carrying capacity, and the other line, line three, gives 370,000 new capacity. So that gives us a million barrels a day of new carrying capacity to come into service uh, over in the early part of the next decade. And so, interestingly, the, it, it, we, I think we're all aware that, that right now, and indeed for the past year, shipping capacity for Alberta's oil sands production has been uh, at, the, at the limit. There, the, the pipeline capacity is essentially, uh, additional capacity is not available. So, interestingly, these two new pipelines uh, provide that extra million, which will accommodate exactly, roughly, the planned new production. So I'd add then a comment, and all this has a bearing on this question, is, is TMX compatible with, with the Paris targets? We have to bear in mind that um, uh, without, I'd say that without this new pipeline, the evidence shows very clearly that that expansion could not take place. Uh, the, uh, it costs about $10 a barrel to transport oil, $10 barrel, dollars a barrel more to transport oil by rail than by pipeline. And now, in this uh, price, oil price climate over the next decade, that will make uh, it unaffordable, uneconomical, not viable to increase Alberta's production if that additional cost is being laid on top of the export cost. And I might say that the upstream emission assessment itself determined that oil prices have to exceed about $79 a barrel in order to make rail transport viable. And I don't think any projections right now are saying oil prices are going back to that that range quickly. So from that, we say that TMX is essential for the planned expansion of this additional million barrels. And I hope I'm not, uh, I want to just give what I think are the essential starting points to this broader discussion we're going to have. So then we look at what do the meeting the Paris targets, uh, what does that have to say about what is going to happen or should happen to global oil production? And to keep it, um, to save time, I'll look at one source, which I think is a, an authoritative source and widely accepted, which is the International Energy Agency, the IEA's World Energy Outlook Reports. And the most recent report that was published uh, uh, last November, I guess, so it's up to date as much as it can be, um, leaving aside the sort of uh, the the uh, pandemic impact. Uh, 
um, that the business as usual picture for global oil production is that it was 97, roughly 97 million barrels a day in 2018, and it is going to go to 105 million barrels a day by 2030. That's on the business as usual uh, planning. That's to say, if we carry on with our existing economic growth and there's no new, very, uh, new, new significant carbon reduction policies, oil, global oil production will go from 97 to 105 million barrels. And you can see, therefore, that Canada's production is, is, um, uh, is um, about 5% of the present level. Now, the International Energy Agency also published last year, for the first time, a new scenario called, well, they've had the sustainable development scenario for several years, but last year they, if you will, updated it, and they gave very explicit targets for oil production that would be consistent with a 1.8 degree centigrade increase in, in uh, average surface temperature. So the sustainable development scenario, and that's a 66% probability of keeping warm in 1.8 degrees, and that would require that global oil production or consumption, look at it either way you wish, must decline to 87 million a day by 2030 and down to 66.9 by 2040. That is quite a startling reduction and was really a first for the International Energy Agency, which heretofore had been very reluctant to uh, commit itself to any need for deep c cuts in oil production. But now we're being told to stay within 1.8 degrees, we have to take the present level, which actually by now or just before coronavirus was about 100 million barrels a day and get it down to 87 million barrels a day by 2030. Now, um, that, and that's actually consistent with all the other studies that have recently come out about global emissions. That includes emissions from fossil fuels. But they have to be cut 50% by 2030 from present levels, roughly. That's the IPCC report in late 2018 and other reports, which I won't drag in here. So, to stay within 1.8 degrees, according to not just the IE, but other studies, global oil consumption has to drop from 97 to 87. Now, if Canada aligns itself with that, and I'm moving quite, I'm just going to move quickly from point to point here. If Canada aligns itself with that scenario that the IEA and other entities have now given us, Canada would have to cut its oil production about roughly 10 to 13% between now and 2030 to be to do its uh, an equivalent cut of our production. So that would mean taking our 3.09 million barrels a day in 2018 and going back to about 2.5 million, which is where we were in 2015, ironically. And then let's go back to where we were before we spent that year in 2016 deciding to build the pipeline. So if Canada were to actually align itself with the 230 oil reduction target, a TMX would not be needed. Um, I suppose it could still be built, but it's not needed. But suppose Canada chooses not to cut, just to keep going, to increase our production. And I want to deal with that again very briefly. If that is the path Canada chooses, and it's presently choosing that path, but nor are any other countries cutting, if all other countries decide to do the same as Canada and continue increasing their production or not reduce their production, then we, according to all the studies of the IA and others and IPCC, we cannot meet the 1.8 degrees goal. And I might say um, the 1.5 degrees goal would require much deeper reductions, and I'm not going to go into that. So in other words, if all countries, including Canada, decide not to reduce oil production in the next, starting actually now, within the next decade, we will not make 1.8 degrees. Uh, the other possibility, of course, is that Canada chooses to be the outlier, the outlier and continue expanding its oil production, but all other countries or substantial numbers of them start to cut. You might say, well, maybe we will be 
quote, lucky, end of quote, and get away with doing that, and all the other people will do the reducing. But there is a fundamental problem in that, which many economists, uh, leading energy economists, have examined. And it is this. If other countries start to cut oil consumption significantly, oil production, oil prices start to decline. And that's basic economics, and it's certainly the economics of the oil market, as we've seen in the last months. And in particular, a leading Canadian energy economist, known to, I'm sure, many of you, Mark Jackard, in May 2018, um, did a report on just that question. He found that, uh, basically, that whatever Canada does, that if global oil production starts to decline in a way that is consistent with staying under the two degrees warming limit, that the cost, the, the, the oil prices will decline so much over that time that Canada will no longer be a viable producer. And the reason for that, which Mark, or, uh, Jack, uh, Mark Jack gave a great consideration to, is that Canada is a very high-cost producer, one of the highest-cost producers per barrel in the world. And in fact, you could call us the marginal producer. We would be the first to go, that's to say, as prices start to decline, we would be the high-cost producer who would go be priced out of the market uh, very quickly. And in fact, Jack Art concluded that Canada's industry would have a, economists always give things a numerical value, he said a 5% chance that Canada oil sands production would survive if the world starts to move to two, two degrees. So I think I've laid out to you there the, uh, my answer uh, uh, to, to the first, if you will, qu- question, which is, is TMX consistent with um, Canada's climate targets? Um, the answer is it's not consistent with the two degrees target. And I will add one thing, that there's another way, or another analysis to go through. I've been talking about the global picture. And as you know, most... Um, when we produce the oil sands oil, about 20% of the emissions are here at the extraction stage, but 80% are downstream in other places when the oil is refined and, and burned in vehicles and so on. So um, it's important to look at the global picture. If we look at the Canada picture, then it's a problem. Are domestic emissions from oil sands industry in Alberta consistent with meeting our Canada's particular reduction target to meet, as you know, a 30% reduction by 2030? And and the answer to that, in my view, is no, um, and I went through that in these processes um, in great detail. Uh, and, and the basic problem is that our Canada's problem is that the oil, oil and gas sector is our largest emitting sector. So if you take it out of the running and says no cuts are going to be made in that sector, it's like has special protection. Then we've got, and, and we bear in mind that certain other sectors in Canada, agriculture and waste, two of the seven sectors will not be making any reductions. They're, they're very difficult to get significant reductions from. But it means that the other f- remaining four sectors, such as transportation and buildings and so on, they would have to do 50% reduction of their emissions within the next 10 years, which I don't think anybody thinks is, is a possibility. So that's my answer to the first question. And um, I'll, I'll pause for a moment, uh, uh, Oliver, and see if, if, uh, if that makes sense, because that really is the preface to what I will say on, on the other two points. Absolutely, Absolutely David. That, that was, was a very, very uh, clear, clear and uh, uh, convincing articulation on that on that first point. point. Thank you very, Thank much, you very much, for much for that. Okay, so then, uh, with that as a background, and I emphasize, of course, it's an oversimplification because it leaves out all kinds of other issues that would have to be weighed in really doing a tight analysis of that, and that includes uh, answering for example, suggestions that technological advances in Alberta in the oil industry over the next 10 years will allow us domestically to produce oil with fewer emissions and so on. And I will only, I'm not going to go through all those other issues. Uh, but I will turn to an interesting question about um, which um, I, I understand is, and I can see would be very relevant to your work, all of you that I'm talking to. Um, what... Um, is the National Energy Board or the um, CER um, the old regulatory? Let's just talk about the old uh, NEB process or something like it. Is it adequate? Is it the best way to, if Canada, if we were to go back in time and say, let's look at this 
let's look at this again and see if what we're planning to do in the oil and gas sector is really consistent with what we committed to do at Paris. Suppose we did that. And as you all know, the National Energy Board very explicitly said it would not look at climate or emissions when it did its multi-year review that concluded in, in, in May of 2016. But what if we were to do it again? Is the National Energy Board the right vehicle, kind of vehicle, to look at this, or some replacement that looks like the National Energy Board? Well, um, I my critique, if you will, would be, or my comment, or what I could give you simply from what I've spent the last number of years doing, and, and I'm a lawyer by background, so I'm not an energy economist, and certainly not an engineer. Um, uh, it, it seems to me that if you followed roughly what I was saying a moment ago, um, that looking at something like a pipeline or any of these large infrastructure projects which contribute to expanding or, uh, if you will, facilitating the expansion of the oil sands or LNG, uh, once we get a look at the data in its broad outline, we see that our oil and gas sector, it is our largest sector, by far 27% of all emissions in Canada. And when we look at all the projections of what those emissions are going to be between now and 2030, and, and we've had now multiple years of seeing these studies year after year, Canadian government's own studies, the National Energy Board's, uh, well, it's the Canadian government's done the emission studies, and all the Pemben Institute and all these other entities that have looked at it. Um, what we see is, is our... Our, um, the emissions in the oil and gas sector are uh, are going to go up between if we do these projects we're doing carry on as we are they're going to they're going to go up between now and 2030 uh, with one little qualification um, and I um, if we look at I happen to have opened to me the evidence we had at, at, in my, in in the in the cases I've just recently been through, so the, the 19, uh, 2017 data, it's not that different from now. The oil and gas sector um, was, uh, uh, was um, under our current measures, was projected to increase to 215 um, million tons of emissions by 2030. And after you take into account all the so-called additional measures, which are all the promises of new things our Canadian government's going to do to reduce emissions in that sector, they're going to go down to 192 by, by 2030. Um, so essentially, there's going to be no material emissions reductions achieved from that sector. And I can tell you without having in front of me that the new numbers are, in fact, uh, no better. I think now the projection is it'll be 198 by 2030. And that is even assuming we do all the methane, uh, uh, tightening up methane emissions and so on, and those regulations aren't even in force yet. So in a nutshell, the problem we have is that the, 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 the oil and gas sector emissions are still going up, or at least flat. And so if we're going to get a 30% reduction of Canada's emissions in the now in the next decade, it has to come from the other sectors. And then in a painstaking effort to work through the other sectors, you find that the two smaller ones, agriculture and what's called waste, which is a whole panoply of different activities, if you add them up together, they're about, I forget, about 140 million tons a year, which makes them actually a big grouping, and they're not going to reduce at all. In no study says they're going to reduce, because they're really hard to reduce emissions from the agricultural sector, for example. So that means that if oil's not reducing anything, we have to get all our reductions from transportation, buildings, heavy industry, and electricity generation. And a number of studies, and, and my own labors at this from a, examining it from a, gathering the evidence for presentations, is that you would have to reduce those other sectors 50% in order to get Canada down 30%. And nobody is even dreaming we're going to reduce our transportation emissions in Canada 50% between now and 2030, uh, even with a very rapid uptake of electric cars or whatever else. So the problem then for any entity like the National Energy Board that is going to, and I can wrap this up, this point up quickly in light of that 
what I've just said. Any uh, panel tribunal or body that is going to look at whether a big infrastructure project is consistent with our Paris targets has got to be have a specialized knowledge, if we're asking these bodies to have specialized knowledge, not just about the energy sector, they have to have specialized knowledge about the transportation sector, aviation emissions, they have to have specialized knowledge about the building sector, to be able to uh, receive and effectively deal with very complex evidence about what kind of reductions we can achieve in those other sectors in a very short time. And, um, And I won't belabor that point, but each of these sectors, like the heavy industry sector, within that are clustered industries like fertilizers and iron and steel, and the discussions that taught to, uh, that could inform us about what emissions reductions might be achieved there within a decade, uh, realistic and accurate discussion, is extremely complex and goes just into other worlds that are not remotely connected with looking at oil and gas and LNG. So I really have to question whether anybody, any tribunal that's charged with looking at whether a large infrastructure project can be consistent with our Paris target, even just the domestic emissions target, leave aside the global picture, is, 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 um, is an enormous undertaking, and there's no reason why the National Energy Board would be the body to do that. And in fact, it is, has its, you people will know more about this than I do. But from my own pouring through their reports back to, uh, back to 2015 and so on, um, the, the previous pipeline, that it's a very much a, um, it's very much to do with the oil industry, and they're very knowledgeable about that industry. But when it gets to um, climate science generally and to other industries and emissions, I don't think there's any reason why that is, uh, why we would um, entrust such a, I guess, existential question to that body. Quite apart, and I leave aside all the other questions about the problem with that industry, these are not judges who have uh, lifetime tenure, judicial independence, and are not like uh, that are not in and out of the very industry they're regulating. Not because they're bad people, but because that's their specialty. They're all oil and gas people or engineers. So I think I'll stop that point there and say that I don't, I think that the body that can, if you will, handle these questions and handle them in a way that's trusted by Canadians would have to be uh, it would have to be a different kind of body and that that uh, it would not be one that emanates from the uh, anything like the uh, uh, Canadian energy regulator and I note that there are some odd conflicts with that because I when um, for example the National Energy Board is also in its uh, it's like a miniature international energy agency it generates uh, global oil consumption data that's relied on by our industry and relied on by our courts and by our tribunals. So back in 2016, when we had the the other process, apart from the National Energy Board, when we had the the um, the upstream emission assessment, which followed it and was supposed to be looking at the emissions question, it was given, the Ener- National Energy Board furnished it with global oil consumption, uh, I'm sorry, yes, global um, oil consumption data and global oil price data. And it was the NEB numbers which said that by 2020, global oil prices will reach $79 and so on. And that allowed the upstream emission assessment to decide that, that, um, that uh, well, I won't get into it. They had this interesting formula that, they, that if oil prices were high enough, i.e. over $79, it would be viable to move oil by rail. Therefore, the pipeline, if built, wouldn't add anything that wouldn't happen anyway. I think I'll leave that there now. My point is the National Energy Board does not have the expertise to look at these extremely complex questions. Is that all right? Absolutely. That's a very uh, clear articulation. Thank you so much. Okay, so um, I might say those what I've been saying is uh, coming from my own, my own perspective as a person with a legal background dealing with uh, dealing with problems of evidence and, if you will, complex litigation. So a lot, all this is all expert evidence from a, from that perspective. So it is manageable to deal with in uh, in a tribunal, but um, it 
the, these questions we're talking about are are of an order of complexity that um, really defies anything else. And I, I, I have a comment that when the when the IPCC issued its October 2018 uh, report, a very important report on 1.5 degrees centigrade and what would have to be done to meet those targets. It offered no, uh, it, it explicitly said it was not offering any uh, opinion or conclusions about the viability of achieving those reductions. And the reason was that uh, arriving at answers is a, I forget the word they use, but it was like multidimensional. In other words, to, to actually be able to say we can do it or we can't do it requires integrating so many different fields of information of, as we've seen here, energy economics, um, um, global demand, consumption, hab- uh, consumption habits, uh, changes in technology of cars and everything else. And it also involves assessing uh, political intentions and likely political behavior. In other words, what's going to happen in the world globally uh, requires making calls about what's the Indonesian government going to do, what's the Indian government do, what can, what can Bangladesh do, uh, what can many of these large emitting countries do. So these are extraordinarily difficult questions. Now, the, the last question was, uh, uh, or the last point I wanted to comment was on how this, given this background, uh, to maybe make a few comments about um, what I've been doing in the last couple of years, um, uh, which uh, really engages the, the subject of, of, turns out to be civil disobedience. Um, by way of background, I made a number of <clears throat> submissions. Uh, I was not counsel at all at National Energy Board or, or at the upstream emission. Well, there were no counsel at the, at the upstream emission assessment because it was a, it was a, it was an in-house. You, there was no public access. It wasn't even a tribunal. It was a bunch of civil servants in Ottawa, and the only people that could talk to them was the proponent, which was the pipeline company. So, but anyway, I had no formal role as a lawyer before those uh, entities, but I did um, make various submissions along the way, including to the uh, to the upstream emission assessment, and then to the ministerial panel, which was the third thing that. Uh, happened late in 2016 and from all of that and my immersion in the sub just like you as I engage with this subject I continued involvement through 2017 and 2018 and uh, I must say uh, I con- had concluded by um, certainly by early 2018 that we were not going to keep I say we collectively the world was not going to be able to keep warming within 1.5 degrees, and it was highly unlikely that it would be kept within two degrees. And that that was um, as best as any human being could do, at least as best I could do, was the rather uh, unhappy con- conclusion that um, settled on me uh, through my involvement in this that had gone back then about six or eight years in terms of intense involvement in the material. Um, in... Um, uh, therefore, and, and other things were happening, which made it look to me like we were getting further away. The government, of course, bought the pipeline in May. The BC, uh, there was approvals of LNG in British Columbia, which adds more emissions to the picture. Um, and in August, uh, I decided that I would join others, many of whom were there long before me, and um, uh, sit on a roadway and block uh, block a road at... Uh, at the Burnham Eternal of the TNMX to to signify my uh, my profound opposition to what was happening, to allowing this to continue. I felt it was truly incompatible with any hope we have of staying within. No longer felt it was a matter of staying within two degrees. It was a matter of trying to keep the warming from increasing as little as possible above two degree above two degrees. All right. And, and I might say the science from the IPCC is we're presently on a path to 3.3 degrees. So I was arrested and then um, have gone through this process of raising the defense of necessity at the trial level and now uh, in the Court of Appeal uh, unsuccessfully from the perspective of winning. And I just want to comment about, it might be of some interest to comment on how I see um, what what uh, how does civil disobedience fit into this big picture that we are all interested in um and um 
in this case, in this instance, uh, for my and there were about 240 other people who were arrested uh, through the spring and summer of 2018. And um, well, the act of obviously the act of, of defying the law, defying an injunction, is itself uh, an act of civil disobedience, uh, and 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 uh, I, which I think of as um, a process of. Um, uh, where it's a public engagement uh, through uh, involving oneself in something like that. And you are, it's, it's a public expression to the citizens of a democracy to draw to their attention what you believe is a great injustice. And you are doing it within the ambit of the legal system. Um so, uh, and, and, and within the ambit of the legal system, I mean that you are not violent, uh, you are not running away after you do what you did, you uh, are prepared to take the punishment, and, uh, and so on. And it's a public act of necessity because otherwise that essential element of civil disobedience uh, is, is, not, uh, is not present because it, you're not there to insult the courts. At least I wasn't. Um, I was there to defy an order in council by the federal cabinet. Um, uh, but you are there to, as much as you can, to express your your um, the reasons, or to, to, if you will, to engage in a reasoned discussion of why this is an injustice, and to do it within the ambit of the legal system. Um, so. In this case, as I say, the initial act of disobedience of the law itself is that, and that is an expression. In this case, we had another opportunity. Uh, This case happened to add an additional opportunity, which was to, within the legal process that then followed, to raise what some would call a test case, or to but to raise a substantive defense within having been prosecuted, raise a substantive defense which would uh, explicitly raise up and reveal the, if you will, the lawyers would call the evidence, but basically reveal the matters which you believe make this a grave injustice. And so, in the common law defense and necessity, which I won't. Uh, go on to discuss here in detail, but essentially uh, an accused must show that there is an imminent peril, uh, that there's an imminent peril, and that all lawful means of avoiding the peril have been exhausted. Those are the two, if you will, essential ingredients or other important elements. So we then embarked on a case of bringing, um, uh, if you will, amassing a a body of uh, proposed evidence and putting it in front of the court at the trial level. And and important to understand that in this case, we were not actually permitted as a right to advance the defense of necessity. We had to get the court's permission to advance the defense of necessity, the court's leave. And secondly, we weren't allowed to put any actual evidence in front of the court. We were, in other words, we couldn't file affidavits or reports or, or statements from eminent energy economists or others, we could only present the court with a summary of the evidence, uh, which we proposed to call if we were given permission to bring it forward. So that resulted in preparing, in this this case, uh, um, um, what I call, I called it an outline of proposed evidence, and it's 119 pages, and it's a very, very... um, I will say, quite comprehensive uh, presentation of what is the available evidence on all of the topics that I've touched on in the last, this last uh, 20 minutes or half hour. That's to say, uh, our emissions, global emissions, uh, all the, if you will, constraints that are in the way of our staying within two degrees and uh, all supporting a conclusion that if we are allowed to call this evidence, we will prove that the world can no longer stay within 1.5 degrees and probably can't stay within two, uh, and that um, um, I'm just, uh, yeah, I think you can hear me now, can you, yes? Yes, you can, yeah. Yeah, good, okay, I just had a little, I'm just switching to a different uh, phone to make sure this is clear. Um, we we uh, we um, we wanted to um, 
show the court we our evidence we said if the court here's this evidence under the applicable test the court could that's a trial judge at a full trial hearing the actual evidence could conclude that in fact uh, we're not going to make these warming limits and that by continuing this particular pipeline which is salient in canada's emissions and what uh, and also salient for world uh, the, the the world emissions um, we are now every day adding to the problem which in effect uh, 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 is irrevocable because once the as we know from the scientific evidence once the CO2 is in the atmosphere it can't be removed for hundreds or thousands of years so every year what we put up there is is irreversible and what we do if you will our children cannot undo therefore this is an imminent peril and this, we said, um, in fact, uh, would uh, allow us to raise the defense of necessity. So that exercise itself, uh, I would, I'm, I'm really trying to explain to you, um, it wasn't done uh, as a show, um, as a performance or a show. It, was a, it wasn't a, just a, a show trial or, a, or from our perspective or trying to, if you will, um, terrorize courts with evidence about climate change. It was putting to the court the all the sources, IPC and so on, IPCC, Canada's own government data, um, to show how grave this is and why this actually, we are now facing an imminent peril and why this defense should be invoked. Um, and uh, you never know, of course, this is unprecedented. We've never had a there's really never been a successful defense of necessity case in Canada uh, to speak of, and there have only been about three significant decisions in the past 40 years, and they're all quite uh, odd situations, nothing remotely like this. So you could say this was a test case. It was a serious case to see how would the court react. And so how would, well, how would the court deal with this? What will the court make of this extraordinary body of evidence um, which um, shows the gravity of the situation we're in and how will it then respond on our effort to raise the only defense really uh, the common law gives us to respond in this kind of the only means we have to to respond bearing in mind that this came after the national energy board had refused to look at the question the upstream emission assessment had declined to look at the question and interestingly, the ministerial panel that reported in November 2016 confirmed that the questions had never been answered. So uh, anyway, that, uh, uh, we, we confronted, if you will, the trial judge with that evidence, um, and uh, he, he uh, rejected the defense. Uh, and if any of you looked at the judgment, he said there's a, quote, contingency, end of quote, that social uh, measures may be taken that will avoid the peril. It was a one-line thing he said and he offered not one other sentence that pointed to the evidence he he uh, purported to rely on so our appeal was and it was just a classic legal case from that classic appeal we said that he drew an inference of fact that was entirely unsupported by the evidence in the adjudicative record and so we went to the court of appeal and we had a chance then there uh, in our factum, and I saw each of these steps as a part, if you will, of this uh, undertaking. The factum, the uh, reply factum, or a supplementary factum, which I might say raised the Dutch case, the Urgenda case, and an Australian case, all of which have dealt with uh, climate change. And uh, we then, and then we, I did a two-hour uh, oral uh, argument on July 7, and the, the judges sat and, and they listened, that's to say, but they they, uh, you couldn't tell uh, how it was being received. They ultimately issued a judgment at the beginning of this week, uh, on the 20, uh, 21st, September 21st, uh, 28-page judgment, which has dismissed the case. And I, I want to then just end by saying to you, when they dismissed the case, it's interesting. They dismissed it on the ground that we could not, we, that we're, there was no air of reality to the defense of necessity in this case. Because, they said, we uh, we had lawful alternatives available to us and i won't list them here they're in the judgment but one of them was the lawful alternative was that we could have chosen to do nothing it was our choice to disobey the law we could have chosen to do nothing so 
Um, and there were other ones. And a more complex one is that we could have chosen to apply to set aside the injunction before we were uh, before we um, went off to disobey the injunction. And of course, uh, our answer to that was even if a court had agreed to set aside the injunction um, uh, um, before we went to block the road, uh, that wouldn't have stopped the pipeline. We just would have gone and been arrested for other uh, criminal offenses uh, which are used in these situations. Nevertheless, um, what is interesting is that the Court of Appeal decided because we had these other lawful alternatives to avoid the peril, uh, they also said we could have brought a civil action, which presumably would be a charter challenge. Um, that uh, and, and you, uh, you you can consider all these things, but that in light of the availability of these lawful alternatives, they did not need to consider whether there's an imminent peril, and that their decision would be the same even if the court, if a court. If, if you will, a trial judge agreed there was an imminent peril of exactly the kind we say is now unfolding, which by implication means agreed that we are now beyond any ability to stay within 1.5 or 2 degrees, the court would still dismiss our uh, uh, application to call evidence on the ground that there's no realistic chance we could make out this defense because we have lawful alternatives available. Now, what that reveals, and I think a test case is maybe served to do this, is it reveals that the court's in meaning that it gives to a lawful alternative is anything you could do, but it's not, um, we'll put it this way, my view of the law is that a lawful alternative is an alternative that offers some reasonable or some realistic prospect of avoiding the peril itself. And if the alternative does not offer that possibility of avoiding the peril, it is not within the meaning of the law a lawful alternative. So I'll just leave you there. A question has been, if you will, etched out, left unanswered. But um, the way the court has left it is that even if we are, um, even if humanity is now, in fact, heading to a pre pre precipice, uh, not for us, not certainly not for me, we are, I'm, I'm I'm not going to see it, but if we are now on this course, and even if it is bad as we believe it is, and many climate scientists believe it is, and many good people believe it is, uh, that um, that still we are still bound to obey an injunction of this kind. In other words, the law prevails over everything else, and um, uh, that um, is, if you will, what this process has led us to. And uh, I think it's uh, at least a cause for um, um, reflection on, on what our legal, the, the fundamental values of our legal system uh, or the efficacy of it. So uh, I think, uh, Oliver, that, um, I think that sort of is my comment on the, uh, w how all this has um, worked its way through uh, uh, one uh, a little um, uh, episode of civil disobedience that has now gone through the court system and, and exhausted uh, things, uh, at least to the Court of Appeal level. So uh, if you have any, any anything you wish me to, or you have any questions, um, I've tried to relate. Uh, so really all the things we've talked about, about the complexity, this initial question of whether uh, the oil sands expansion is compatible with Canada's oil, go, um, oil uh, climate commitments and also what the perfect uh, or a workable tribunal might ha have to have the capacity to do. Um, in the meantime, we've taken this to the Court of Appeal level in the very restricted ambit of the, um, the defense of necessity issue, and it has, it has simply left us with, um, I think, a rather... Um, certainly disappointing um, uh, picture of of uh, where the law, uh, how the law is prepared to engage with this subject. I, I had actually would be interested, I was very interested to see what the court would do. Would it uh, set aside uh, the trial, uh, would it set aside the ruling below that there is a contingency that we can avoid the peril, but then go on to decide to dismiss the case on one of the other one of these other issues still argue, for example, 
that um, we, we have lawful alternatives. But um, instead, it's avoided answering uh, at all. It's silent on the fundamental starting issue, which means that it's really mimicked what the National Energy Board did. And uh, that's why I find it um, a distressing outcome, because it's, it's, we just don't seem to get any of our institutions, certainly not Parliament, um, to engage with the big question. So I'll end there, for, 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 unless you want me to add anything. David, that's excellent. Thank you so very much for, for sharing that with us. And um, it's fascinating and, and um, certainly disappointing um, conclusion for now. Uh, have you, um, can you say if you're thinking about seeking leave to the Supreme Court of Canada? Um, I, I, um, I'm, I'm looking right now very, very carefully at it, Oliver, um, and, and I, uh, both in the, in the um, obviously the basics of whether this judgment uh, has any, has promise, and, and I think the issue of, uh, that emerges out of it uh, without going on at all about it is this notion that um, uh, that uh, the court can make a ruling on the lawful alternatives and their availability without first deciding what the nature of the whether the the imminent peril exists and what its nature and imminence is uh, because the law um, uh, in uh, in the in the Latimer case and the Perka case have uh, made it very clear that the two issues are very tightly tied together and that, in fact, you can't separate them. You have to first decide, understand the imminence of the peril before you decide if there's a lawful alternative available. And, um, in fact, I, I'd like to give you just, uh, if you can, uh, I'll just give you this. Um, it's it, In the judgment of Dixon, Mr. Justice Dixon in Perka, uh, he, he addressed this very specific point. And he commented, and I'll just read this paragraph to you. He said, the requirement that the situation be urgent and that the peril be imminent tests tests whether it was indeed unavoidable for the actor to act at all. In other words, were there any other alternatives? And then he quotes uh, Lefebvre and Scott, a, a textbook on criminal law from 1972, and he, reads in, he writes in his judgment an extract from that text that says, it is sometimes said the defense of necessity does not apply except in an emergency when the threat of harm is immediate, the threatened disaster imminent. Perhaps this is but a way of saying that until the time comes when the threatened harm is immediate, there are generally options open to the defendant to avoid the harm other than the option of disobeying the literal terms of the law. So I leave it there. But that suggests to me that... Um, uh, the prior step a court must take in determining that there are reasonable alternatives is to precisely make a ruling on the imminence of the peril. So I'll leave it there. And, and, and so that is an interesting issue that maybe merits uh, consideration. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, David. I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, best of luck uh, if you do push this, push this forward. Thank you, Oliver. And thank you to, your, uh, to all of those who've been with us today.